everyone. This is Glenn uh, with the Vinnegan Podcast. Uh, it's been a while since we've been able to bring you something, and we've got something really neat coming up. I have today with me an old colleague and teacher, Dr. Tamara Spike of the University of North Georgia. And initially, I had said, let's find three things in Latin American history that we can talk about that most people don't understand the importance of. And as I began to think about it, I realized how stupid I was. And there's no way we could cover that in one podcast. So Dr. Spike has graciously agreed to let today's podcast be the first in a three-part series we're going to do on those events. And I want to go ahead and let Dr. Spike introduce ourselves, tell us about her, and we will dive into the first of those fascinating and important topics. Dr. Spike. So hi, um, I'm Tamara Spike. I have been at the University of North Georgia since 2006. I'm a Latin American historian, which means that I teach all of Latin America from prehistory to yesterday. Uh, but my specialty is uh, indigenous history in Latin America and the colonial period. But I like teaching and talking about the 20th century, most of all. <laughs> that's that's hmm, indigenous and yet 20th century. That's you're coming at it from both ends, aren't There's you? There's a huge indigenous movement in the 20th right. century that's, you know, now it starts in Latin America and now it's global, so. Right, right. So you have, uh, I turn to you as the expert to kind of pick three things. As I said, three things gringos need to know about Latin American history. Because, you know, here at the History Center, we don't look at that as much as we should. And a lot of folks get through, you know, school and, and it's just barely touched on, but the history of the, I mean, it's two thirds of the Western hemisphere. It's a huge part of our population, of our, of our shared history. And there are events there that have affected not only Latin America, but the United States and the entire world. So tell us the first one you've picked and just dive into it, if you would. Okay, great. Well, uh, the first one I wanted to talk about today is the Haitian Revolution. A lot of folks look at Haiti and think, well, is that really Latin America? Because it's Francophone. Right, because it was a French colony, because they are they don't speak Spanish, right? And so and for Latin American historians, you know, it's an integral part of the Caribbean. So most of us say yes, absolutely. So um the Haitian Revolution I wanted to talk about because it's got all kinds of reasons, you know, why it matters, why it matters then, why it matters now. And so I guess let's dive in. So the Haitian Revolution, probably a lot of folks know and ha- and what they're familiar with is the idea that it was a revolution of enslaved people, right? It was a revolution that where enslaved people rose up and became a nation unto themselves. But it's a way more complicated movement than that, right? It's the second of the Atlantic revolutions. It produces a Black republic in the Americas. Uh, so to dive in, it starts in 1789 um, and it goes on until really 1904. What was Haiti was a colony called Saint-Domingue, and it was the richest colony in all of world history, right? It was called the Pearl of the Antilles, and it raised um, cane, sugar cane, right? And um, was tremendously wealthy for France. It had a population that was overwhelmingly Black and enslaved. But the population was really complicated. And one of the things about the Haitian Revolution, I think that's important to know, is that it's a complicated event. It's not, <laughs> yep. um, I mean, it is, yes, a, a rebellion of enslaved people, right? They rise up, they self-liberate, they become an army, they kick butt, uh, <laughs> you know, and establish this nation. But 
it's an international war in a lot of ways, right? And there's infighting in this, you know, army of formerly enslaved people. But anyway, so it starts because the the, the population of Haiti is complicated. You have white planners, but then you have their children of color who have, you know, some of them they have freed. They become plantation owners themselves. They become really rich. There's a population of free people of color. There's a population of what they call Maroons, who are enslaved folks who have run to the mountains and they've established free communities there of, you know, self-liberated people, right? Runaway slaves. And then there's the the enslaved population, uh, as well as a population that they call the Petit Blanc, right? The little white population. And they're not rich people. You know, the people that are like school teachers that are kind of on the margins of society. And so among these people, when the French Revolution kind of breaks out, there are all these shifting alliances over the entirety of the war, right? Who does it make sense and who's your natural ally? So, you know, for the people that own plantations, they don't necessarily want to ally with the people of color who are also rich and slaveholders and want to own plantations, but they do, right? So, you know, that makes for one complicated little bit Beyond that, as you know, the war breaks out and goes on for years, what's going on in the background in global events is the Napoleonic era of France, right? Napoleon is emperor of France. He becomes emperor of France in what, 1801? Is that right? Yeah. Te- yes. Yeah. I mean, he's in charge before that, but technically he's not emperor until then. Yes. That's when he, that's when he <laughs> crowns himself. Yes, yes, absolutely. Right. So, but it is the Napoleonic era. He becomes emperor right in the middle of the Haitian revolution. And it's bad for him that he's losing this island, right? That's a lot of money. He needs that money. He needs that money bad. <laughs> And so, you know, he twice sends armies to try and take back Haiti. And meanwhile, Spain and Britain are sending armies and they're trying to make alliances with the army of enslaved, you know, formerly enslaved folks with their leader, Toussaint L'Overture, who is this figure that becomes, you know, one of the, the national heroes of Haiti. He, he becomes really the face of the revolution in a lot of ways. He himself had been enslaved. He was well-educated. He had kind of good groundings in military history because he had access to a library of one of the slaveholders that, you know, he had um, been bonded to, that he had been enslaved by. And, you know, he kind of rises up and becomes this leader and captures the imagination of a lot of people, right? Especially, I'd say, enslaved people and people of color all over the Americas. But later on, there are other leaders of the revolution as well. You know, Toussaint eventually is captured by the French. He dies in a French prison. But it's really, he becomes the face of the revolution. But anyway, to, you know, go back to the idea of this complexity, as I was saying, you know, the, at one, a couple of points in time, the French and the British become involved too. And so as the leader of this army of, you know, what is going to become Haiti, Toussaint negotiates with the Spanish. He allies himself with them for a while. He goes back to the French because the British are a problem. It, it's an event that really kind of embroils the entire globe in this crisis, right? And the outcome matters. It really, really matters. It matters to France because of, you know, the prestige, because of the money, because of Napoleon's armies. It matters to the United States because 
Well, to begin with, you know, if we think about why is this event significant, right? Haiti as the second revolution of what's going to become this era of Atlantic revolutions under John Adams, Adams, as you all know, I'm sure is virulently anti-slavery, right? And he is willing to negotiate with Haiti. He's willing to lend help. He's willing to enter into a diplomatic arrangement with them. And and here it's larger than just, you know, helping out the the Haitian army. You know, he is interested in a tentative way in establishing diplomatic relations. And it's important for such a young nation, right? The United States is in its infancy at this point. And who we bond ourselves to matters, Right. right. We're looking for other republics to join with. Absolutely. Yeah, right. Kind of, that's but what Haiti it, is. Yeah. It, or, it's, or it's trying to be, it's trying to be anyway. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And for a lot of uh, Americans at this point, you know, that's important. But what's also important is they're scared of the legacy of what, you know, what, what happens if Haiti wins, right? What happens if, if it becomes a free nation, what happens to slavery within the United States? And so when Jefferson becomes president, one of the first things he does is he's like, yep, that's it. We're done. You know, Haiti, you have no, I refuse to recognize you diplomatically. He stops all the programs that, that um, Adams had kind of, you know, an aid that Adams had extended. And for really slaveholders in the United States, you know, it was something that was really, really dynamite to right. them, Right. You know, and I know, you know, and I'm sure a lot of you know the listeners know that for the United States, there is Haiti was something that for, you know, decades after slave revolts were based around the idea of Haiti. Right. It's, it's the worst. It's, it's the worst nightmare. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, they directly appeal to Haiti in some ways. It's not just, you know, we want to look to Haiti as our example, but, you know, in 1811, there's this spot in Louisiana where the idea is to burn down plantations north of the city, then we're going to march on the city to liberate it and declare it to be a free city. And the first thing we're going to do is we're going to apply to Haiti for diplomatic relations, right, and establish ourselves as this kind of independent entity, and also for military support. Yeah, and then, you know, Denmark Vesey, another... um, Famous example, you know, but 10 years later in 1822, he models his plans on the Haitian Revolution. The idea is to liberate Charleston, and then the people that have self liberated are going to sail to Haiti and just up and leave, right? And become free men and women. It's, <laughs> yeah, well, as you say, it's the worst nightmare. And that's what you're talking about is a great example of how these events that a lot of people have never heard of or thought about have massive influences on the early United States and mm-hmm. play a huge role in the Napoleonic Wars, which even though they're going on 3,000 miles away, these concerns are central to Napoleon and his boys and King George and his boys. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, right? You know, Britain would love to get their hands on Haiti. Uh, they, they're unable to, but they try. They try pretty hard. Spain wants to... They already, of course, if you think about where Haiti is geographically, it's on the island of Hispaniola and one half, well, roughly half is Haiti today. And the other is uh, the Dominican Republic. But, you know, that was Santo Domingo and a colony of the Spanish. And so the Spanish were really interested in A, defending their colony, but also B, you know, we'll take it if we can get it. Yeah, absolutely. Right. What ends up happening within the Haitian Revolution is that under Toussaint Louverture, they 
and eventually end up taking Santo Domingo, right? And it becomes a Haitian island. And this is one of the things that resonates today too. There's still this very uneasy relationship between the two nations. And there's a lot of discrimination between the two nations as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, a lot of it can be traced back to the Haitian Revolution. Well, and the, you know, the island itself, isn't it the second largest island in the Caribbean? Yeah, Cuba is the first. And yeah. Then, um, yeah, the, the Hispaniola is the second. And so, you know, it's densely populated. It's, it, they're, they're big nations that matter. Right. Well, yeah, the revolution itself, I can't remember. I, you know so much more about this than I do, but there are hundreds of thousands of deaths that occur during the revolution, aren't Absolutely. there? Absolutely. And so that, that just gives you an idea of how densely populated it is even then. Yeah, absolutely, right? And when we're talking about deaths, you know, it's a bloody war on the battlefield. It's a bloody war in terms of occupying cities. It is a really costly war in uh, casualties because of the environment as well. So, you know, when Napoleon's sending these armies in, he's sending in armies and, and they're contracting yellow fever and just dying by the thousands. And so uh, the environment, uh, of course, you know, People who are Haitian are dying as well, but not at the same rate necessarily as the Europeans. And so, you know, it, it's a, a real kind of um, alarm bell for Napoleon. You know, this is what happens, you know, to your armies when you're fighting in areas that they are not acclimated to. It's a lesson in military history. Right, right. And so he eventually gives up on the big cash cow that is mm-hmm. Haiti and decides to get his cash elsewhere selling Louisiana to the U.S. Absolutely, right? And this is something that uh, Haitian historians and just in Haiti, uh, popular kind of mythology in Haiti, it's Haiti's gift to the U.S., right? (laughs) This pressure because of Haiti. We have the Louisiana Purchase, you know, manifest destiny becomes a thing after this, right? And it's all because of Haiti. (laughs) So what kind of, as the Haitian Revolution succeeds, Right. Uh-huh. It, it succeeds. They gain independence. They create a free black republic. Mm-hmm. What does that republic look like and how does it move forward in these very complex political and diplomatic situations that you've Ooh, already talked really about? Question. It's rough. <laughs> right. It, it's rough. It is a matter of immense pride and Haitian autonomy and Haitian sovereignty is a matter of immense pride, but at the same point in time, they have a rough go of it because it, it is not recognized as an independent nation by many other countries for decades afterwards. Uh, and so foreign relations is a problem. It is a matter of immense pride as well because of this idea of a kind of reordering of racial hierarchy. And that resonates through not just the Americas, but the world, but especially the Americas. Under the Haitian constitution, as a matter of fact, when after Toussaint dies, one of the leaders that emerges becomes the first president of Haiti. Eventually, he declares himself emperor, um, but Jean-Jacques Dessalines. And in Dessalines' um, constitution, he makes this statement, this idea that all Haitians from this point forward will be henceforth, the language is henceforth will generally be known as black, right? Doesn't matter what you are, (laughs) right? You are symbolically black because Haiti is a black nation, a black republic. And that's something that kind of echoes loudly in different ways to different populations all over the world too. 
Right. And some of the laws they set up, it's interesting that they're appalling to so many of the other European and, and, you know, like the United States, Mm -hmm. because the laws are sort of the mirror image of those laws in terms of land ownership and things, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a really good way to put it, right? So, you know, for a while, there's a much change over the next 50 years, but generally speaking, you have to be Black to own land in Haiti. The only way for European folks, for white Haitians to own land is to marry into a Black family. And that happens, you know, there's a very large German population that moves in and marries a lot of uh, into Haitian families. And that causes a lot of concern for the U.S. later on when it comes time for World War One. Right? <laughs> yes. Oh, see, every, see, folks, everything comes back to World War One somehow. Everything does, really, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. Is it, you know, in terms of Haiti to, you know, talk about how this shakes out and, you know, why it's rough. One of the reasons why is that France demands indemnities for their property loss, and that includes people, right? And so what they demand is something along the lines of, I think it was 100 million, 150 million francs to begin with, which was something, and they reduced it to 90 million after a decade. That was something like $21 billion in today's money. Yeah, that's an obscene amount. Yeah, it's an incredible amount, but it is, you know, a test. It attests to how rich that colony was, right? And so Haiti has to pay these in order to gain diplomatic recognition from other nations. Has to start paying this indemnity, and they pay on it to France until 1888, at which time U.S. banks basically buy out the debt. And Haiti continues to pay on this to what is now Citibank until 1947. Wow. Yeah. But they paid it off. Uh, Well, yes and no. Yeah, they they ended up paying something along the lines of 112 million francs, um, which the real cost, though, is, you know, what could have been economic growth for Haiti Economists have placed it somewhere between that 21 billion figure, you know, if you're just looking at the face, but maybe as much as $115 billion. And so Haiti has long been the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere, and the roots of it are here. That's not the only reason why, right? I mean, it's also deforested, and, you know, there's all kinds of reasons why Haiti is the poorest nation, but the roots of it are in this indemnity. Right, yeah, because that that's money that could have gone to internal improvements and things Absolutely. like that, but it's... But it's hemorrhaging money because it's being forced to export it. Yep, um, absolutely. And, you know, that's one thing I remember learning about Haiti, too. Even even when they're able to have the revolution, they get things on track, they've got this republic, geography is destiny, right? Mm-hmm. And Haiti, there's all sorts of bugs and disease. They're hit by earthquakes, it seems like, every every third day. Yep. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but not by much. But there are massive earthquakes that reshape Haitian history, the latest of those, of course, in 2010. Right. And it's it's just, you know, in some ways, they can't catch a break. Yeah. Because <laughs> there's, yeah, no. there's all these factors they have zero control over. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, you know, there are a lot of internal pressures that have shaped Haitian history. And, of course, they have a hand in it, but... As far as, you know, the kind of external hands that shape Haitian history, it, it is loud. <laughs> it, it resonates loudly. Right, right. So if you had to sum up mm-hmm. the effect that the Haitian Revolution has had on us today where we sit in 2022, what would you say about that? 
Hmm. Okay, well, what I'd say, I'm going to echo here a really famous scholar, Katie Lawrence Bois. And he talks about this idea that when you look at the kind of literature on it, people tend to either paint it as this kind of paragon of everything that is wonderful and perfect. And then there's, you know, it is terrible and awful. It, there's complexity, right? The human tendency to look at it and see either light or dark and nothing else, but really it's just all shades of gray. Fantastic. So folks, hopefully this will get you to dig into this a little bit more. Dr. Spot, can you make any recommendations for the layperson where they can go, books they can get? Absolutely. So um, that historian Dubois, D-U-B-O-I-S, Lawrence, he wrote this great book called um, Avengers of the New World. That's fairly recent, really accessible, and really interestingly told. I'd say, you know, go to that. Okay. As a starting point. Perfect. Perfect. Well, folks, we're going to leave the Haitian revolution behind. And in the next episode, we're going to look at, we're going to creep a little bit closer to home and look at the Mexican revolution. Is that right, Dr. Spot? Yep. Yep. Nick, we're going to jump ahead a hundred years. Okay. Time and space travel. It'll be perfect. That's the beauty of the (laughs) internet, folks. So until next time, thanks for tuning in to Then Again and Y'all keep listening and sharing with your friends and stay safe. Take care. Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps other people discover the show. There are a few great ways to support the History Center. Make a donation online by clicking the donate button on our website at www.negahc.org. Become a digital member to receive exclusive invites to members-only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. And you can register on our membership page at www.negahc.org. We also have an online gift shop with lots of great items for all ages. Use promo code THENAGAIN for 15% off your online order. Valid on anything except memberships and handmade items. We'll see you next week for another episode of Then Again. Thanks, y'all.